0: When I was growing up, the story went like this. My grandmother, whose name was never mentioned, had died young, leaving my mother a virtual orphan.
1: Food poisoning, she died from food poisoning.
0: Mum always said she didn't have a childhood, but I remember a single studio photograph that says otherwise. There she is, a little freckle-faced girl smiling straight at me. Soon after that photo was taken, my grandmother disappeared. I knew she was sick. I must have known that she wasn't
1: in the house. She was in the hospital. She either died on my birthday or was buried on my
0: birthday, 25th of November. My mother's ninth birthday, 1942. Mum's father, Tom, was a quiet Irishman, working class with communist leanings. My father
1: wasn't living with us all the time because of the war and he was working around Australia in the forces. But he came back when my mother died. I can remember telling him that nobody had said anything about my birthday. And I remember him giving me some money and I bought one
0: of those pictorial books of, what was it called, The Something of the Boomerang. It was the first book Mum had ever owned, The Search for the Golden Boomerang. She remembers the title, but can't remember the shape of her mother's face. After the funeral, her family was split up. My
1: brother, John, was fostered out to friends of the family, and also my step-siblings, two sisters and a brother. Their father came and took these three children, and I didn't see them for years. It just was an unknotted family. You know, there weren't
0: the knots, there weren't the ties. And there weren't the family tales. It wasn't until the birth of my first child that my mother told me my grandmother's name. Edna Lavilla Haynes, knee Abraham. How
1: did she die again, Mum? (laughs) Food poisoning. She died from food poisoning, you know? I think I remember you telling me. Yes. And then, of course, I got enough courage to say to people um, she died of a backyard abortion.
2: Grab your coat and
3: get
4: your head. Leave your worries on the doorstep.
2: Just direct your feet to the sunny.
5: Hello. Hello.
0: How can I help you? I'd like to find out where my grandmother was buried. Yes,
6: yes, if you've got the name.
0: Edna Lavilla Haynes.
6: Methodist One.
0: Yeah. Grave 543.
1: All right. These are gravel roads down the old areas, and it's on the right hand side there. Now, did you want some names either side to help you find it in case there's not
0: a headstone? Yeah, yeah, because I have a feeling it might not be much there.
6: That should help you. Okay,
0: good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Roman Catholic. That's that one, so we're the next one. The Search for Edna Lavilla is produced by Sharon Davis and myself, Eurydice Aroni. Oh, where's the numbers? They're often etched in the bottom
5: of the
1: gravestone. See, that one says
5: 111. Oh, well, we've got a
1: way
0: to go. My mother was 72 when we decided to try and find out more about her past. Her health hadn't been good, and she'd become depressed. Abortion was in the news again, and maybe it was this that ignited her growing anger at politicians, her friends and her children. Perhaps finding her missing family would help soothe the raw memory she had of her childhood, that of being an unloved and unlovable little girl. Now we go down here and then we take one of these pads, the top one, that one there. But where to start? All we had was a death certificate that said Edna had died at Crown Street Women's Hospital in 1942. The hospital records from that year had been destroyed, but there was still a chance that those who worked the wards might remember her.
5: Well, tell me, what are you doing the interview for?
0: We're making a program about my grandmother who died at Crown Street oh, yes. in 42, and we're looking for her records... And we've got my mother's memories, but she doesn't remember much.
5: She probably wouldn't have been told very much at that time, either.
0: No. But she does remember after her mother's death there being a newspaper hidden from her.
5: Must have been reported, wasn't it?
0: Stefania Sidlecki began her medical career at Crown Street Women's Hospital in 1943, the year after my grandmother died. Each week she saw around 30 women who'd had illegal abortions that had gone wrong. There was birth control, the withdrawal method or douching with a solution of Condy's crystals, but it was unreliable, and condoms were expensive and sold only in barber shops. It was a time where as many as one in four pregnancies ended in abortion. That's not one in four women, but one in four pregnancies terminated. All those old ladies who've never said a word.
5: There was a network, a sort of underground network. Uh, I remember one woman was uh, in her 40s. She'd married an elderly widow and uh, she got pregnant. She went to some pharmacy, told them what she wanted. They took her out the back door, into a car, and she went off to some place. She had no idea where she went. The man who did the abortion had a mask on, he didn't talk to her. He did the operation and then she came home the same day.
0: Most abortions didn't result in death or complications, but if you did get into trouble, you'd present yourself at the hospital. There, the doctors were instructed to save the pregnancy. If you weren't showing definite signs of miscarriage, such as very heavy bleeding or fetal tissue, you'd be sent home and told to come back later
5: when there was more bleeding more trouble. A lot of women would have bleeding, quite heavy bleeding for several weeks and never come to hospital. Some of them even died at home if they breathed very quickly, very suddenly. But the ones who did come to hospital, we would ask them had they done anything and almost invariably they'd say no. Now, there were abortionists around, private abortionists who charged quite large fees and who put women into a private hospital and would probably do a fairly good operation. But they were very expensive. And so what a lot of others did, they would put a catheter up into the uterus or they would inject something like condus crystals or something like that up into the uterus. And that would disturb the pregnancy. Then they'd be sent home, they'd have the abortion at home and they'd be told, if anything goes wrong, don't contact me, go straight to hospital.
0: Death from abortion represented over a quarter of maternal deaths in 1931. And the figures stayed much the same until the introduction of antibiotics in the mid-40s. Edna's death certificate said she died of septicemia, but that alone didn't kill my grandmother.
5: It was also her poverty. The ones that died mostly were people who had tried to abort themselves or who had gone to these less skilled people. They charged a fee, they injected stuff into the uterus, and what we would get very often in hospital would be someone who would be desperately ill because the injection would have gone into the wrong place, or they might have penetrated the uterus. So some of them were quite ill. But it usually was those women who had to have the cheap abortion. Uh, Do you know what her financial circumstances were like? Very poor. Well, she'd have probably gone to a midwife or some local woman who did abortions. She might have had a torn uterus, she might have had an injection, when she must have had some sort of damage that was just beyond the normal scope of what happens in a, an uncomplicated abortion. She died of septicemia, yes. Septicemia means a generalised infection in the bloodstream and they often get abscesses in various parts of their body where the organism settles down. So they get a pneumonia, they may get bone damage, you know, they get liver damage and uh, they are not a very pleasant sort of death.
0: The Sydney newspapers of 1942 are not short of killings. Street fights bolstered by visiting troops, shark attacks in Sydney Harbour, and then the unidentified women, victims of Illegal operations. Half undressed in deserted lots, back lanes and disused factories. In the crime section of the Daily Telegraph, we find my grandmother, Edna Lavilla. We could easily have missed her. There's no mention of abortions or even operations in the headline. The report on her death has another tag. Something extra pointed to by its single word title, family. The shocking truth is that my grandmother had not intended to have an abortion. Instead, she had gone along as support for her pregnant 17-year-old daughter. Here you go. Here's the the newspaper report. Oh, that you, you found, found it, Edna Novella. Yeah, right. Oh, was it the Telegraph or something? That's the Daily Telegraph. 43, the 17th of the first 43.
7: Right, right. Astonishing evidence was given by Marie Kezia Haynes, 17, at the coroner's court this week during the inquest of her mother, Edna LaVilla Haynes.
1: Marie, I didn't know that was a second name. Rezia Haynes. Oh,
7: 17. According to the girl in November last year, she was pregnant. She said that a man named Douglas Alfred Medhurst of Doncaster Avenue, Kensington, was responsible. Who? Medhurst.
1: Uh, Medhurst of Doncaster Avenue, Kensington,
7: Oh. She had been keeping company with him. She had been
1: keeping company with him.
7: And he had made arrangements to take her to the house of Monica Mary Swanton in Doncaster Avenue. He had agreed to pay for the operation. Good God. When they went to Swanton's house, she and Medhurst were accompanied by no other person and the girl's mother, herself pregnant.
1: Ooh. Didn't know any of this, of course. And the girl's mother, herself pregnant.
7: Mrs Swanton, the girl said, suggested that her mother should be operated on also. The cost was to be £45 paid by Medhurst for both operations. The mother died, and both she and her daughter suffered from septicemia after the operations.
1: Yeah, I knew that. Hmm. So.
7: City coroner Aurum committed Medhurst and Swanton for trial on a charge of manslaughter. Oh, where does it He stayed there for six
1: days. Hmm. Oh, how horrible. Awful. Gosh. Well, there you are. You can't hide your past. She was small, short, um, dumpier than I am, in a better cupboard. She had uh, short, dark to some degree wavy hair. But I don't remember her features. Don't remember what she actually looked like. Don't know what color her eyes were. Um, That's about it. You go
8: home, I'll come soon.
1: I don't think I ever mourned her. Um, And I don't know how much anger that was. Because some of my earliest memories are sitting on the wine bar step of pubs, you know, in Redfern and... I I can hear phrases of, you go home and I'll come soon, in the wine bar. I can remember that, (laughs) you know, mantra. And I'd still be sitting there on on the step, poor little waif that I was. I must have had some guts, even then. (laughs) Just to sit there and say, come home, Mum.
8: (laughs) If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all.
1: But then I can remember also there was one photograph I had of myself as a little girl. And it was a studio photograph and I'm sitting on a little table with a little dress on and shoes and socks and I'd had my hair cut and all the rest of it. And I thought, now, <laughs> someone that day really set out to do a nice thing of taking, having a photograph of me. It's the only, only one I've got of me as a child. And I've got no photograph at all of my mother.
8: Now you make sure you share this around because that's what people do, share things.
1: The three of us used to sleep in a double bed. And I always had to sleep in the middle and I used to hate sleeping in the middle of the bed with these two older girls. (laughs) I used to get get nudged in, in the ribs with their elbows and all this, that and the other. And I remember things of turning over the mattress with a cake of moistened sunlight soap and getting as many of the bugs out of the bed before you went to bed so you didn't get eaten so much. You know, I can
8: remember that. Laugh and the world laughs with you, cry and you cry alone.
0: to a in, see this road here. We cross this and then it's up there, right up there, maybe. It just doesn't seem to keep going. At the New South Wales Government Archives there's a pile of dusty books, each the size of a small suitcase that lay bare Australia's hidden history of abortion crudely typed transcripts of abortion trials, pressed down upon other related felonies, such as infanticide and baby farming, and commonly tell of women defendants, some nurses or midwives.
8: There's also a little sign over there.
0: So they're all cremated, remember? Yeah, they're cremated. So... We were searching for the trial of Douglas Medhurst and Monica Mary Swanton, Medhurst, both accused of killing my grandmother. this 3. So it should be Instead, we found a copy of the Police Gazette that revealed Swanton had made a prior appearance in court for the manslaughter of Mrs Sylvia Ivermy, a young married woman whose body was found in Swanton's Kensington House. Swanton was no Vera Drake. Part-time bookie, other-time known abortionist, she knew the consequences of her own ineptitude. Acquitted of Evimi's death through lack of evidence, two years later she was back on trial. Methodist 1, 546. Maybe the numbers go like that. They go back in front. The Gazette also listed the names of the police who worked on Edna's case. It's not easy. Maybe one of them visited Edna in the hospital. She might have talked. We'd have her words. Someone must have testified for there to have been a trial. We're getting close. But all ten police who worked on the case were dead, including Special Constable Ethel Burton, a police widow remembered fondly by her young protégé, Nancy Martin.
6: Yeah, there's Babe Burton. Mm-hmm. And here's me over here with a collar on. Oh, you're always your playing clothes. That's another one of me, a woman charged with murder. And it was 1941
0: when Nancy Martin was recruited as one of a handful of women to the New South Wales Police. Her job was to work on cases involving females. Rape, child abuse, searching for those suspected of spreading venereal diseases, prostitution and abortion.
6: Oh, this Burton's in this one too, I think, here, yeah, that one. That's a fabulous photo. <laughs> Which one's you, Nancy? Here, well, here somewhere. So ah. you were the first we were the true policewoman. We Miss Armfield was the first one in charge.
0: Special Constable Martin would regularly accompany male detectives to Crown Street Women's Hospital, where they'd take statements from women who were dying as a result of a botched abortion. There was one case that Nancy couldn't forget. This
6: one was in this little room on her own. I don't remember names or anything. I just remember her. I don't know why she stands out of my memory. What did she look like? Well, she was sitting up in bed and all I could see was this straight hair. Dark hair? Oh. She wasn't a blonde. What did she say, Nancy? We went in. Such a little room. And she was in a bed opposite the door and there were a chair on each side of the bed. The detective sat on that side and I sat on this side. And he was questioning her. Who did she go to and all that sort of thing? And she said, oh, I don't think I will tell you. She, said, oh, she told us that she had been told herself that she was going to die. So anyway, I just piped up then and I said, well, what if it was a young girl that had gone to there? She said, I never thought about that. And she told us the name of the woman. And uh, anyway, that she died two days later. We were notified that she died two days later. That's I remember it because she, sitting there in the bed, I couldn't, I just couldn't forget her. She said, oh, I'm going to die.
0: We'd had no luck with Nancy, and the transcript of the trial was missing. Sharon, however, convinced the librarian from government archives to take another look in the basement. Beyond the shelves of neatly filed reports, she found a forgotten box from 1943. In it was what we'd been looking for, statements of the coronial inquiry, transcripts of interviews taken under oath. The names we knew now told their own stories. Douglas Medhurst, toolmaker, and co-accused who paid for both abortions. My grandfather, Tom, who identified Edna's body. Police and doctors involved in the case, and the principal witness in the trial, Edna's daughter, my 17-year-old Aunt Mari. My name is Mari
3: Kezia Haynes. I'm 17 years of age and resided with my mother at 5 Redfern Street, Redfern. I'm a factory hand by occupation. The deceased was my mother. I know a young man by the name of Douglas Medhurst. I first met him about March 1942 and was keeping company with him until about May 1942. About May 1942, I found that I was in trouble. I spoke to Doug Medhurst. I told him I was pregnant. He said that he wanted me to get fixed up.
0: I said no. Mari and Doug broke up. A couple of months later, they meet at a friend's place. Doug asks her to go see his doctor to have the timing confirmed to see whether it could be his. They never make it to the doctor. Instead, he takes her to Doncaster Avenue. Introduced as a nurse, Monica Swanton examines Mari, who again says she's planning to go through with the pregnancy but after they leave, Doug offers to pay Murray £18 on top of the abortion cost. Tempted by the money, her resolve fades. I will ask Mum, she says. He asked me to go out and see the woman at 3pm.
3: I went out there with Mum. As soon as Mum walked in the door, Mrs Swanton said to Mum, You're in the same way, aren't you?
8: Yes. Are you going to have it? How many kids do you already have? Oh, this'll be number six. You have enough kiddies. I wouldn't be having this if I had the money. Why don't you let Doug pay for you too? Oh, I can't let him pay for me. Look, just stop here because Doug's ringing up at four.
3: A telephone rang at four p.m. Mrs Swanton answered it. She then said, Listen, Doug, her mother is in the same way. Will you pay for her too? Then she came back from the telephone in to me and my mother and she said, it will be all right for the two of you to be fixed up. We left after that. Doug came to my home at 11am on the following day. Mum and I went to Mrs Swanton's place. Mrs Swanton took Mum into her bedroom and I waited in the lounge room. Sometime later, I was asked to go into the bedroom too. I went into the same room as Mum. Mrs Swanton told me to lay on the bed. Mrs Swanton used a thin rubber tube on me. She put it inside me. Mrs Swanton changed the tube a few times a day as far as I was concerned. She did the same with Mum. My mother and I later got undressed and went to bed. We stayed in bed at this place from the Saturday till the Thursday. The tube was changed a few times each day. The baby came away from Mum on either the Monday or the Tuesday night. I think it was the Monday night. The baby came away from me on the Wednesday night. After the baby came away from my mother, my mother was in a terrible condition, suffering pain. Mrs Swanton said that my mother would stop there until I was all right until the Friday night. On the Thursday night, a knock came to the door and Mrs Swanton came to our door and said to us, "'Don't make a noise, there's a couple of policemen outside.' I heard Mrs Swanton say, "'There are no women here. You can't go through the place without a warrant.' Mrs Swanton then came into our room and told us that we had better get up as the police were coming back to search the place. Mum and I both got up and went home. My mother did not get any better. On Friday morning, we got a doctor and my mother was sent to hospital. I was taken to hospital too on the Sunday. This is the first time I have ever had anything to do with the police.
8: Promise me you'll look after your sister. Look after your sister.
0: Edna died of septicemia in Crown Street Hospital two days after leaving Swanton's house. Eight days after the abortion. Mari survived, just. She too suffered from septicemia, had a hysterectomy and left hospital five weeks later. She died three years ago. Monica Mary Swanton, manslaughter, two years, paroled after one. Douglas Medhurst, a two-year good behaviour bond.
1: Well, I feel tremendously sad about the particular circumstances of that abortion. The word itself, you know, explains it all. It was a bloody abortion of A person's life you know and you know as a feminist it makes me very very angry and regretful that you know women are still carrying bloody shame and guilt around the consequences of deciding to have an abortion it's so slow to change
2: that's
0: 335, that one. Maybe we could ask this groundsman.
5: Yeah.
0: We're after Methodist one, grave yeah. 543
6: and 547. Yeah, you hear. Yeah, that's the here. Yeah, the numbers, they'll run in sections. You know, a lot of them are hard to see. Mm-hmm. You just got to like that, and, and the number will come up
0: we'd never expected a happy story but now we dug up my grandmother and left her out in the cold the gruesome details of Edna's death did not tell us anything about her life who she'd been there was no dying deposition no last words we resolved to keep looking for Edna but this time we had to find her alive for mum's sake
6: Does that, mean that it goes So up? Be a divider, so that'll probably come.
0: In the meantime, we put a notice in the paper searching for those with similar tales, anyone with a personal experience of abortion during the 1940s. Silence for three weeks, and then, as if it took exactly that time to get up the courage, the phone rang steadily. Warwick Shering was one of the callers, saying he wanted to know more about abortion during the 1940s. But in talking to us, he confessed that what he really wanted to know about was his mother. Lillian Shering died suddenly in 1942 in a small country town in New South Wales. She came from a respected business family and the story went that she had died lifting a lawnmower over the back fence. But Warwick had a different memory of that day.
9: I was five years old at the time. Sky outside was grey, so I'm assuming it was around five o'clock in the morning, I don't know whether I woke up because of uh, the light from the bathroom, or whether it was through my mother crying, but in here I woke up, uh, found the bathroom light on, and my mother uh, lying, uh, half sitting, against the bathroom wall. My mother wouldn't, wouldn't speak to me, I, th- I thought I'd done something, something wrong. Anyhow, I sat down in the hallway, which looked out and, onto the bathroom, and just, just waited there.
0: In the morning, the boy's uncle came to visit. Finding it all quiet, he looked through the window. Warwick says his mummy has been in the bathroom all night and he can't open the door his uncle climbed in through a window and found Warwick and his one-year-old brother lying beside his mother's dead body. Because his father is away fighting the war, Warwick and his brother are separated, shuffled around relatives till their father's return. The trauma of his mother's death holds him tight and it seems as if he's the only one who remembers her.
9: My father remarried after the war and uh, my mother as far as um, my life concerned, didn't exist. Uh, her death and her life weren't discussed. In fact, she didn't even have a proper gravestone at the time. The story had been spread around that uh, she had died uh, through lifting a lawnmower over the, the back fence in those days. The old push mower was quite heavy, and uh, a lot of people apparently accepted that throughout the family, uh, The fact that uh, she died through uh, trying to abort herself um, wasn't mentioned at all.
0: On Lillian Shering's death certificate, there's no mention of her pregnancy, or that her attempted abortion almost certainly killed her. It was only when Warwick began to do family research in the 1980s that he found out the facts. And these came not from family, who certainly had known, but from the coroner's report. The electric light was on, and on the floor were two basins, one with a clear fluid-like water, the other empty. A Higginson syringe was on the floor. The post-mortem also says she was three months pregnant and that she died of an air embolism, which could have been caused by the use of the syringe.
9: Not only is it sad that it happened to her, but the fact that if you read the documents, you'll see that the doctor performing the autopsy said that she was a healthy woman... ...and, you know, the fact that she had to die was... I've, I've, <laughs> ...I cried. I was extremely sorry that my mother had to go to that extent. Um, you know, if abortion had been legal... She could have had the abortion carried out and she would still be alive and we would be a whole family. I don't condemn her at all because that was a choice she had to make at the time. I'm just disappointed in society, forcing that on her and eventually causing her death.
0: Warwick's story echoed my mother's. And like him, I wasn't going to let a botched abortion and a family silence erase Edna from my mother's memory. My children's history. With the court papers, we had names of those who might give us leads. The doctor who cared for her in the hospital, dead. The abortionist, dead. Mari's boyfriend who paid for the abortions, dead. Back to mum to pick her memory for those who might lead us back to Edna. But when she'd been fostered, she'd lost contact with her family. There were no addresses or even surnames for sisters who she'd last seen 40 years ago. We needed to return to the archives, but this time births, deaths and marriages, electoral rolls. You want to hear oh. the good news? Yeah. Your other sister's alive. Really? And uh, oh, fantastic! she's very um, mm. anxious to talk to you. Oh. It sounds like she remembers quite a lot. It oh, doesn't yes. sound well, like she, she. would have been, what, 15? She also mm. remembers that um, when she was younger, before you were born, mm. they were put into the bird yeah, side. Yeah. And when your father mm. came on the scene, mm. they got the children back. Right. Which means that there'll be a file on you somewhere. Probably.
5: Yeah. Mm. Probably. Yeah, and maybe yeah. about your mother.
0: Yes, yes. Uh. At this stage, we were all thinking that maybe this hadn't been such a good idea. But we had struck a positive note with the discovery of Mum's sister. We also tracked down Edna's only living sibling. They'd been a close family, he said. And although times were tough, he described Edna as always smiling. She loved to whistle and sing, and he recalled her favourite songs. With help from my aunt, we obtained the files from Burnside Children's Home. They contained welfare reports, records of visits to the children, and letters from Edna.
8: Mrs E Haynes, care of Mr C Abrahams, 35 Mackey Avenue, New Lambton, via Newcastle, July 1930.
1: Well, um, she's writing to Dr McIntyre, and Dr McIntyre was who? Dr McIntyre,
8: I think he might have been part of Burnside Homes. Mm,
1: You'll see by enclosed forms. Dear sir that I am making application. You
8: will see by the enclosed forms that I am making homes. application to place my two children in the care of Burnside homes. My reasons for making same are my husband deserted me in july nineteen twenty nine, leaving me penniless with two young children and about to become a mother. I have had no support from him for myself or children since july nineteen twenty nine. I have no-one that could take my children and have to depend on relations to do for me, and they cannot afford it as they have their own homes and families to keep. I am feeling the effects of bad times with short working times.
1: I'm trusting you will take my
8: case. Trusting you will take my case into consideration. I am yours truly, Mrs E Haynes.
1: Right. Mm. Well, it certainly
0: reads a little Dickensian, doesn't it? Yes. The bad times are, of course, the stirrings of Australia's depression. By the end of that year, one in four families would have an unemployed breadwinner. The doll was in the form of ration cards and you had to be a man to get it. Edna, like all women, was expected to rely on her family And so she moved to Sydney, a city described as swarming with beggars, in 1931. But as the depression continued, her private sadness began. In 1932, she again applied to Burnside Children's Home, this time asking them to admit her two-and-a-half-year-old
8: son. I am in bad health. I am suffering from a nervous breakdown and have been in the hospital for a fortnight. The doctor advised me to keep as quiet as possible and I said I would be better without the responsibility of my boy. I am living with my mother and she does not have good health and has three young children of her own to look after. I am yours truly, Mrs Edna. She's now 24 and meets my grandfather,
0: Thomas Rowe. Almost straight away, she falls pregnant again, this time with my mother. Four years go by, they move several times, unable to pay the rent. The situation between her and Roe has deteriorated and she applies to have my mother put into care. A Burnside social worker comes to assess her application. As the social worker is
8: leaving, Edna pulls him aside. I can't continue with him any longer. He threatened me again this morning. I must get away from Roe. I had to call for the police this morning... You can see how it is here, all of us living with Grandmother, but we'll be all right as long as he gets out and I can get a job.
0: My mother joins the other children at Burnside, but a few months later Edna and Thomas have reconciled. They ask Burnside to return the children. But behind the scenes, Edna's brother is urging Burnside not to let them go. The couple are unmarried, he says in a letter. They are not fit and proper persons. Scared and desperate, Edna abducts the four children. My
1: mother said to the girls, when I tell you to run, you run outside the gate and then there'll be a car and just get into the car and we're going. And that's exactly what happened.
8: You don't remember that, but you are obviously part of it.
1: Yes, I don't remember it at all. At all. So, how brave.
8: I'm going to take you home, but I have to steal you. I have to get you out without them knowing. So when I say go, run for your life out that big gate.
1: Thinking back and and reading the letters, she did what was available there for her to keep these kids. Perhaps there were times when, you know, the drink took over for a little while, when things were desperate, but uh, I think there was quite a lot of strength in those letters that she wrote and the way she could work the system when she had to. But how long can you go with that daily emptiness in your life with many children, no money and no hope for anything to change into the future?
5: These are the admission notes of your mum
1: depressive state. Mum
0: and Sharon are reading the last Precept. files we found on Edna. I mean, 38. They're from Broughton Hall Psychiatric I Hospital. Blue eyes. Nutrition good. Sadly, this is the most detailed description that we'll find of my grandmother
4: and her life. Age, 32. Children. Alive, 4. Dead. One girl at 14 months from bronchopneumonia. Habits. Alcohol, nil. Tobacco, occasional cigarette, personal habits and food tendencies, clean and tidy, bakes food, height, five foot and a half inch, general appearance, pale young woman. Patient became pregnant about three and a half months ago. Pregnancy after pregnancy. She did not want another baby but was quite... She did not want another baby but was quite content to go on with pregnancy. This is Edna's seventh pregnancy but we already know it's not her last. Husband was afraid to leave her alone in the house while in this depressed state.
0: In the house while
1: in this depressed state and suggested she should return to hospital. There's so
4: much here that
0: reveals her determination. She's lonely. She has no energy to have this
4: child, but tries to carry on. Patient feels worried because she has failed her family. They are not having proper care, yet feels too weak to look after family, house, etc. Has cried most of the time.
1: Times didn't get better, did they? In any way, really. She was growing older. Mm. What else to do?
0: Edna's poverty and illness left a paper trail, one that sets her in history. The irony is that that same poverty also led to her abortion and stained her memory forever. There are members of my family who we found through the making of this program who would rather we hadn't told this tale. They
1: actually said that um, our mother should be uh, left alone with her privacy. Well, it's not private because it was all public in the court case and everything else. So they haven't been able to deny it in any way, but they denied it to themselves. It was just too much to honestly say that their mother had died of an abortion and a botched abortion and, you know, the court case and everything else. So I can only see that their silence and not wanting to bring it up out in the public arena again is because they felt shame about it and also the way that they say they wanted her memory not to be sullied. And that's fair enough. That's what they believe.
0: This story is not just about one woman, it's the story of many women, then and now. In 1949, Mary Henderson came to Sydney looking for work. As a young child, she'd already seen her mother nearly bleed to death from an abortion. Mary's accommodation was a rented couch in someone's living room. When she became pregnant to her new boyfriend, she approached her doctor for an abortion.
2: Because she was very fearful of herself as much as for me, she couldn't take the risk that something would happen to me under an anaesthetic without supervision. So she said, if I do it, it's without anaesthetic. I had not to scream or do anything, so she packed my mouth with uh, gauze or whatever it was, a packing material, and uh, uh, then promptly just scraped This is, uh, you know, something that's very dangerous basically because you're removing what's in the uterus but you're also scouring the walls so that it's very open to infection. And then she gave me uh, sulphur tablets to take and I left and went back to my couch in the living room. (laughs) And, of course, I woke up bleeding profusely. I was in absolute excruciating pain and Bernie was with me and he went he managed to get the doctor to come to me well whatever it was I was reasonably all right by the morning and I can't recall if I staggered to work or not but I bled for about 12 weeks because of course the uterus had been totally excoriated did you tell anyone at all no never told anybody. You wouldn't have told anybody. Even today, my sons, believe me, they are are very modern people. They would not like it said or talked about that their mother had an abortion. In the 1990s,
0: 50 years after my grandmother accompanied her daughter to have an abortion, Mary did the same. There were marked differences in their experiences. This time it was safe. There was counselling. But the shame that keeps us quiet still
2: holds. I went with her to the preterm. And much to the surprise of the people, they asked my daughter who was with me when they saw an older person, and she said her mother. And they said they could not recall... Another mother ever coming. And this was only 15 years ago. So it still is totally the responsibility of the individual woman or girl. And this is why I would speak out. This is not how it should be. This is society's problem. All of us are responsible, but why is it only women that keep the story and tell the legend? Why is it men still don't want to hear? I don't know those answers. Violet
5: Burkett. Here,
0: uh, olive Green. Hawks. Ah, six six eight. Six, five, eight. Oh, we're getting closer. Oh, look. Here it is. This is five, seven, six. So, that's Edna. There's absolutely nothing there. No headstone, no outline of a grave. Oh, well. It doesn't tell me very much except what I already know. That nobody had any money. And the fact that she died the way she did of a backyard abortion, nobody ever spoke of her again. It, It was too sad. And too shameful, I think. Um, I mean, you almost feel like reaching down to her in some way. I suppose we could uh, put something on the grave. I haven't bought any flowers. Oh, there couldn't have been any other result, really. It's
1: been difficult, and difficult for you too, I know, but it's, I'm pleased that, you know, I've done it, very pleased that I've done it. It's a picture and a knowing of the reality of a woman's life and being able to put a smile on my face now when I think of what and how she did live her life in spite of it all. and. You know, I I know more of her. I feel as though I know something of her now.
0: Yeah. And she's now part of the the story of your life really. She is before. She is. She wasn't at all. At all.
1: Yeah. And there are positive things there. Mm. Yeah.